Welcome to this podcast, International Clinical Trials Day 2020 is this week. And now, perhaps more than ever, it's important to recognize and show our appreciation for clinical trials and the critical role that they play in advancing public health. I'm the moderator of the podcast, Ken Getz. I'm a professor at uh, Tufts University School of Medicine and the founder and chairman of the Center for Information and Study on Clinical Research Participation, or CISGRIP. CISGRIP is a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating the public and patients about clinical research. And I'm delighted to be collaborating with Parexcel to convene this podcast. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, we've seen many changes to clinical trials. New clinical trials have been initiated to test investigational treatments and vaccines for COVID-19. Some clinical trials for other diseases have been delayed or suspended, and some clinical trials active before the pandemic have adapted to become more convenient. Most notably, they've embraced virtual and remote approaches for study volunteers. This shift has occurred in part to maintain continuity in clinical trials that had to remain active and open while study volunteers observed social uh, distancing requirements and also to minimize the risk of exposure to the virus. For this podcast, we'd like to explore how clinical trials have changed and adapted. We'll begin with the perspective of patients and study volunteers. And I'd like to welcome our guest panelists three members of Parexcel's Patient Advisory Council, all are committed to working with the pharmaceutical industry to amplify the voice of patients and caregivers and to improve patient engagement. Trishna Bharatia is an award-winning health advocate and patient engagement champion. She lives with a number of long-term physical and mental health conditions, including multiple sclerosis, chronic urticaria, and IBS. In addition to her full-time job, Trishna is a patron ambassador for several health and disability-related organizations. She also once was chosen to be part of the United Kingdom's version of Dancing with the Stars as the result of her advocacy work. Trishna, welcome. Thank you, Ken. Our next uh, uh, panelist is TJ Sharp, and he's a stage four melanoma patient and I've had the privilege of collaborating with him on a number of educational initiatives over the years. TJ was diagnosed in August of 2012 with melanoma tumors in multiple organs only four weeks after his second child was born. Since then, he has undergone six surgeries and four immunotherapy treatments over two different clinical trials. TJ has a unique perspective on patient centricity and is an advocate on behalf of patients. Thank you for joining us, TJ. Thank you, Ken. Simon Stones has lived with arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, and fibromyalgia since childhood, and has been a family caregiver as well. Since getting involved in research in 2012, Simon has advocated for people living with health conditions and their caregivers to be involved in healthcare services and research. Simon is also nearing completion of his PhD in applied health research at the University of Leeds, where he's developing recommendations to aid the self-management of arthritis by children and their families. We're delighted to have you join us, Simon. Thanks, Ken. It's also my pleasure to welcome Parexcel's Chief Medical and Scientific Officer, 
Dr. Sai Pretorius to our panel today. Sai has worked closely on clinical development programs with uh, biopharmaceutical and medical device companies for more than 20 years to help develop new therapies for patients. Sai and I have collaborated on a number of projects and initiatives. He's also a leader of Parexel's Patient Advisory Council and Patient Innovation Center, both dedicated to bringing the patient perspective into every aspect of drug development. Sai, welcome. Thank you, Ken. Delighted to be here. So, Trishna, perhaps you can kick us off in our discussion today with some of your thoughts on how clinical trials during the past two months have changed. What have you seen and what do these changes mean for patients considering participation in clinical trials? I think the main thing that we've seen has changed is that there's been a different focus. The focus and also budgets are being redirected towards COVID-related drugs and vaccine development. And as as patient communities, that can be concerning because yes, whilst we obviously we do want to find a treatment or a vaccine for COVID, that doesn't mean that other diseases just stop. And so there is worry amongst the patient community about trials potentially being halted, being stopped altogether, whether there's going to be enough investment in different disease areas so that trials can continue and drug development can continue in other disease areas. With patient communities, worry is always there, anxiety is always there. It's something which comes with being diagnosed with something that's wrong with your health. And I think this has added an extra worry in terms of what does the future look like for clinical trials in drugs development, which is outside of the COVID COVID environment. Simon, do you want to comment as well uh, and uh, build on what Trishna has just uh, uh, described in terms of some of the changes she's seen during the past two months? Yes. So, I mean, it's very clear that, you know, the attention seems to have shifted towards COVID-19 and rightly so. But as a patient advocate and, and being involved in this space, it's also demonstrated that some of the hurdles that we faced previously in drug development and um, have suddenly not been forgotten, but have been overlooked a little bit. So, you know, we we all know that the processes take a long time and there's lots of difficult challenges to overcome um, and navigate as we develop medicines um, that proportionately affect a, a small percentage of people with chronic conditions. Um, and, and, and I think there's also a little bit of frustration for people like myself living with chronic conditions that you know when there's a capacity for something to affect a larger percentage of people all of a sudden you know investment is not so much an issue a lot of the the barriers that were presenting before um, to drug development have seemed to have shifted and things seem to be progressing much more quickly now being an optimist i hope that that's something we can learn from that process um but i think we've also got to remember that while covid19 is still such a major problem for for the world you know, that people with existing health conditions are still living with those conditions. And so we mustn't forget those people. And I hope that moving forward, some of the lessons that we've learned in how we do research and how we develop medicines will then apply to the the developments of medicines for people with chronic conditions in a similar way that's much more streamlined, has got less red tape, and ultimately gets to improve people's quality of life sooner. Thanks, Simon. 
TJ, now maybe I'll just bring you into this discussion as well. And if we could sort of redirect the question a little, do you also feel that uh, in response to uh, the pandemic and the reallocation of attention to uh, specifically to the virus, do you also feel that um, the continuity and the continued investment in uh, many other active clinical trials is an area of concern. Uh, I'll kind of echo um, what both Trishna and Simon said, uh, is that I think patient populations are, are concerned that the rest of us are going to be left behind, or at least you know our medical conditions put on pause. Now, all of that being said, uh, there is a, there is a, a silver lining in, in what COVID has brought to the clinical research world, uh, that the, the barriers to entry to trials uh, have been removed specifically here. Uh, my biggest fear as an advocate is that when, when all this is over, that we simply go back uh, to, to what we were doing before. And it, it's sort of, everyone goes back to their, to their normal life. And we don't take the opportunity uh, to transform transformationally elevate clinical research so that the lessons that we learned and the positives from this experience uh, are then integrated into, uh, into the, uh, the existing clinical trial world. So you, this is great and uh, a very important uh, topic that I'd like to move to next. But before we do, I just want to ask the three of you to comment on ways that um, your clinical trials, uh, if you've been active in them or your awareness of uh, clinical trials that have been suspended, are there things that could be communicated to help alleviate concerns of being left behind? Go ahead, Trishna, did you want to comment? I think that the key thing here is there needs to be as much information as possible disseminated in a timely fashion to the people who need it. Often patients end up being the last people to receive any kind of information and when actually they need to be the first because they're the ones who are going through this. They're the ones who are essentially putting their lives um, into this trial. It's them that's being affected and I think Having the information, having, you know, yes, we can't see into the future, but having some sort of an idea as to what might be happening will enable patients to be making these decisions about their healthcare. Because at the end of the day, people's diseases, people's conditions, they don't get put on hold. And people need to be making decisions about what the future might hold for them, what they need to do next in order to be able to live as positive a life as possible with their condition. Without information, they're not able to do that. So I think timely, consistent, relevant, and complete information is really, really important. And and just to add to what Trishna has said, um, I think you know that, that importance of clear and consistent communication is absolutely key even if that is that the trial is not progressing at the moment, but keeping people informed as to where things are, I think will really help to to dampen the anxiety that people have got because like Trishna has said, 
our conditions still carry on regardless of COVID-19. And so that clear communication and that honesty, I think is really valued and will be valued by the community. This is extremely valuable feedback. Um, can I ask each of you, uh, TJ, maybe you'll kick us off to comment on the importance of continuity in clinical trials and how do we educate patients? How do we educate study volunteers to understand its importance, especially in light of the fact that some trials have had mixed levels of uh, communication? Um, how do we, how do we um, continue to maintain that continuity in our studies? And of course, one approach is with more remote and virtual support. Ken, there's a, there's a number of ways to uh, keep continuity. And, th and the reason it's important is that, that patients, uh, you know, volunteers, uh, participants are, are they're, they're looking for a routine to keep their quality of life balanced. Uh, it's difficult enough um, having on the unknowns of a clinical trial and, and not being sure uh, what the health result is. So the continuity with, uh, with everything else in the clinical research realm uh, certainly makes a, a big difference in, in trial participation and, and the experience that, that patients have on the trial. Uh, where I think we have a, a huge opportunity for continuity is leveraging the flexibility of something like virtual trials uh, or uh, decentralized trials where uh, you do have the ability to uh, kind of not, I don't want to say pick and choose how the trial is run, um, but there is flexibility built into to a trial protocol uh, for things that may be less critical. Blood draws is a, is a very good example. When a trial has such a rigid uh, protocol design and it's really the patient adapting to the trial and not, not the other way around at all, uh, it, it makes it, it make it puts the onus on us as patients to uh, put our lives on hold, kind of like how we are right now with COVID, uh, to put our lives on hold in, in a certain way so that the trial can we can acclimate to the trial, uh, and that that integrating flexibility in that in that trial design uh, will allow for a better experience for a patient and and a little more continuity of 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 the the research balance with uh, the everyday life, which as we all are experiencing now, uh, doesn't stop because of a of a healthcare condition, even a pandemic. Even now, um, we don't really have uh, the choice whether to go with a, a virtual remote or a uh, an actual in-person visit. But perhaps this gets a little bit at the silver lining you were talking about, TJ. Do you feel, and I'll invite it, all of you to comment, do you feel that remote and virtual trials are an important option that we should be able to offer to study volunteers uh, long after the pandemic is behind us? I'll start if everybody's okay with that and turn it over to somebody else. Virtual trials have been around for a decade, and yet we still don't utilize them nearly as, as well as we could. Now, with COVID-19 forcing our hand, it is, it's almost become the uh, standard practice for the immediate uh, 
future uh, for all those trials that were already already started before the pandemic began. Uh, I'm looking forward to to those lessons learned and the and the adaption of of virtualized uh, trial design and telemedicine and, and all the things that go with it. Uh, becoming part of the standard vetting process for a protocol. It might not be every trial has some element of telemedicine or virtualization to it, uh, but that it's in the conversation uh, for every trial as it's designed is going to really make that a very patient-centric uh, method of, of putting out clinical research. I completely agree with that, TJ, and I think that the industry has the opportunity here to really move forward in line with the way that the rest of the world has moved forward and embraced technology. So take remote working, for example. That's not been the norm for for a lot of people, but it's been forced upon many companies and suddenly they're realising the benefits of remote working and you know there are companies now that are saying that perhaps the pandemic they will continue to offer remote working i would hope that within the clinical trial space the same thing will happen because having elements or entire trials that are decentralized will give people better access to investigational drugs it will enable people to more easily take part in trials. You know, I work full time. I've been offered some trials before and I've had to turn them down because I just cannot afford to be spending the time going to and from a trial site. Now, if things were being brought into my home, that would be made much easier. Geography wouldn't be so much of a problem. You know, your lifestyle, things will fit into your lifestyle if clinical trials become more decentralized. It will be about putting the patient needs at the heart of the way that the trial is being conducted. And at the end of the day, the pharma industry wants to be moving towards that. They want to be moving more towards putting patient needs at the center why should the clinical trial space be any different? It's a key part of the, it's, you know, the, probably the most crucial part of the drugs development process. So those patient needs need to be put at the center and having those digital elements, virtual elements, decentralized elements is crucial to making that happen. And there's, I don't think I've much more to add to what um, TJ and Trishna have already mentioned, but for me, the the key aspect is about making research accessible to more people. And like Trishna, you know, I'm managing my own conditions. I've got a busy working life and other things going on. And so I have not been able to take part in certain trials because of those reasons. So the more that we can do to make trials more accessible to people, to fit in with their daily lives, then they that's better for people but it's also better for recruitment you know one of the challenges i hear time and time again is about recruitment and we're struggling to recruit and i think this is going to be one of the things which we'll be seeing more and more over the coming months and years as we deal with the aftermath of covid19 because there is this still at the moment there is this anxiety around even attending the hospital um and I think, you know, this is going to stay for some time. So I think we, this is the perfect opportunity, although it is a really sad opportunity, 
that I hope will shift the industry into thinking we need to not keep talking about decentralised trials, but actually start to do things now and how can we fit things around people's lives um, that makes it much more accessible and much more convenient to people. I think you've touched on a really key point there, Simon, about mentioning the anxiety about going to a hospital. So even where trials might be continuing, we need to remember that pay, that people who have underlying conditions are the most vulnerable when it comes to COVID-19. And there is a real fear amongst communities about going to a hospital, about going to a site where potentially COVID patients are being treated, about potentially being exposed to the virus. Even, you know, it doesn't, I don't think it matters really which country you're living in around the world, there's been some sort of lockdown measures in place. We're being told to stay at home Yet many people who are living with chronic conditions who are then taking part in trials are then being told, well, actually stay at home, but your trial is continuing, so go to the hospital. When the hospital is deemed to be, and and I say in inverted commas, an unsafe place to go because you could potentially be exposed to the virus. And that shouldn't be underestimated because I think the mental health of the patient community has really deteriorated in the past couple of months because of that fear of the virus, because of that fear of potentially being exposed. If you leave leave your house and leave the, the, the safety of your immediate environment. Let's bring uh, Sai into this uh, fascinating conversation. And Sai, obviously you have a Uh, a vantage point here that I think can really add to this conversation as a clinical research professional. So I wanted to first ask you what your impressions have been of virtual and remote clinical trials. You know, how easy are they to run? And um, are the uh, comments and reactions that have been expressed on our panel today consistent with what you've seen among uh, patients uh, in many of the trials uh, for which you've been involved. Yes, Ken, happy to uh, chime in. I would say overall, the comments that TJ and Trishna and Simon shared are very much aligned with what we're hearing from other patients. Uh, I think the important point that I believe TJ made is that the virus in itself, the whole pandemic has been a true catalyst for the adoption of some of these innovations, including decentralized clinical trials. We've been running a number of these. Um, We have about 70 or so that that are actively ongoing and that were ongoing uh, of these decentralized trials, even pre-COVID. And with the uh, pandemic hitting, we've seen a tremendous uptake in interest for converting ongoing Uh, trials, ongoing non-decentralized clinical trials to more decentralized approaches. So definitely been a catalyst in that regard, Ken. Do you think that as as we really uh, start to move into the old swing of things, do you anticipate that virtual and remote approaches have now entered the mainstream and they'll continue to be offered as options or is it more of a a reactive response? Uh, We may revert to our old ways. All right, I'll quickly start and let my panelists jump in with me. 
I believe that every clinical research site has the awareness now that there is some component of uh, virtualization to clinical trials going forward. Whether or not they adapt to that is going to determine how their future as a clinical research site is going to be. Uh, there is a lot of evidence that we can continue to do extremely good research in a virtual environment and it's only going to uh, become more and more evident as both COVID-19 trials and vaccine trials uh, are conducted and the existing clinical research that is happening right now is, is continued in, in a somewhat virtualized uh, world. So uh, in terms of patients, I think we're, we're used to uh, adaptability. Um, you know, from a business model, I hope that the, uh, the, the research sites and the sponsors that are, are putting uh, research at the, those sites uh, recognize this, uh, this adaptation and don't resist it uh, maybe as strongly as they have in the past. Despite uh, all the negative aspects uh, you know, that are inherent to a pandemic such as this, in my opinion, and certainly what I'm seeing across the industry, Ken, the pandemic has been a catalyst for innovation, uh, you know, specifically innovation in drug development. Um, to that point, and to cite a few examples, we have seen a marked increase in the adoption of decentralized clinical trials, uh, also for trials that were not running decentralized initially and pre-COVID. We've seen quite a bit of appetite net and adoption of remote monitoring, the use of real-world data, platform designs, compared to the period prior to pandemic. And these are all good things, in, in my opinion. These are innovations that have been at our disposal for a while. And I think TJ pointed that out previously, but the, the adoption of that, of these approaches and these innovations have been slow. And I, I certainly think for all the negative, the, the pandemic has helped in that regard. To pick up on what our patient panelists said before, in, in my personal opinion, Ken, it would be an absolute disaster if as an industry, we go back to the way we did it before, after the pandemic. That would be a worst case outcome. I think we've proven during this uh, difficult period that many of these innovations work, they work well, and they should become part of the fiber of clinical research as we go forward. And I think actually there's, a, there's an onus there on the people who are living with conditions to, you know, to speak up and say, actually, this has been really good for us. And this has made things much easier. And it's made a trial more accessible. And it's made, you know, our lives easier. So you have a vested interest in continuing in this way. Because, you know, as you know, Simon spoke about recruitment, but also retention is really important as well. So just because you've managed to recruit somebody into a trial, keeping them in that trial is key. And I think if you've had the opportunity to experience a decentralized trial, it's one of those things, once you've experienced it, then potentially you're not going to want to go back to the traditional way of doing things on the patient side, in which case then, you know, research sites are going to be forced into 
keeping things you know virtual making sure that there are elements that are brought into people's homes because that's what people want and yes while patient communities have been asking for this for a long time and now the industry has been forced into the situation I think now's the time is a real time for advocates to be saying, right, we're in the situation, it's being forced. However, there are really good advantages to this and let's keep it the way it is. And I, so I think there is an onus on the people who are taking part in trials and patient communities to make those opinions known and heard so that hopefully it will it will remain and we don't just move move backwards. That is an excellent point, uh, Trishna. And uh, if I could ask all of you to think about and perhaps comment, let's assume that, uh, as you've said, once a patient has experienced the convenience of a virtual or remote trial, what uh, and, and there are many advantages to it, what are some of the areas that could be improved now that uh, many trials have been forced to embrace these approaches as a more common activity during the pandemic. Are there still some areas that uh, are where some improvement uh, could be made? Perhaps the way that uh, site personnel are supporting remote activity. Uh, I've heard, for example, that uh, some uh, sites have uh, challenges with uh, support of the technology. It's hard for them to act as the help desk, if you will. But are there, in things that you've heard or if you've experienced a virtual trial yourself, are there still some areas where uh, improvements uh, could be made and, and there might be some good insights or messages to make them even better? I mean, I think, um, you know, with what we've got, I think there's going to be no reason why we don't go back to the old model um, and, and keep this. But I think, you know, some of those anxieties which are still there around access to support within the the site team and um, what do you do about um, more clinical related tests and how can we make those more accessible to people in the community I think those are still the kinds of questions which are you know because this has all been done quite rushed I think we need to very clearly clarify for people the process by which a decentralized trial works and I think that will clearly become to the forefront um, as we move forward um, but also building in resource so that we keep these truly um, decentralized so thinking about how can people um, attend local um, primary care practices for blood tests um, so really keeping it out of the hospital setting um, and how do we navigate through some of the, the problems such as technology and um, such as things coming on time um, and, and supporting people in that process um, because I guess at the moment people are still feeling a little bit isolated um, and I think that's part of the key thing of taking part in a trial is is that isolation which people might feel um, and might feel even more so um, with it being decentralised so making sure we build in things around each individual um, taking part in a trial I think will be key um, and real clarification on the processes to aid people's understanding of, of what's expected um, of them. And I think in the decentralised setting, there is more responsibility that's put onto the, the person who's taking part in the trial, because it might be that they have to, for example, 
uh, monitor their own uh, monitor their own symptoms. They have to take responsibility for they might have to take responsibility for drug storage and administration and things like that. I think it's really important that patients are given the education and the tools necessary to allow them to feel comfortable in taking on that responsibility. Because at the end of the day, in a traditional setting, you go to the trial site, all the responsibility is basically down to the the trial staff, the, the, the site staff. Um, in terms of administration, in terms of monitoring, in terms of you know everything you only you just have to essentially get there when you're at home there is more responsibility on the patient and also the caregiver as well if there's a caregiver involved so like I said they need to be comfortable doing that and in order for that to happen they need to have the education and the tools to to be able to take on that responsibility and that is down to the, the the site staff and the people who are running the trial. Ken, uh, you touched on a very important other aspect, which is the role of site and site staff in the whole decentralized clinical trial setting. And I think that is a, a critically important area and, and an area where at present some level of confusion exists. Certainly our view on the Parkcell side is that sites are critically important, that they will remain critically important even if a larger percentage of trials are ran in a virtual or decentralized way. But certainly in terms of clarifying the role of the site, the level of support, their role in the technology, etc., I think there's still work for us as an industry to be done in that regard. Thanks, Cyan. I was going to uh, invite you in to, to build on uh, that very topic. Um, from where I sit within a university setting, we take a macro view of the clinical trials landscape and how it's changing and evolving. And one of the areas that we hear frequently now is that in an, a, a world that is focusing increasingly on patient centricity and improvements in patient engagement, where we offer more options, but as you've pointed out, we're also able to maintain high touch and uh, that personal connection and those relationships while embracing and using more technology, more automation, all of this is introducing higher level of customization into our clinical trials. And uh, that I would imagine, and Sai, maybe you can kick us off, I would imagine that level of customization can be daunting when you're involved in the execution of a clinical trial where you will offer certain options to some, but others may have a preference for other options. How, how can we support all of that uh, customization? Yeah, it's an excellent point, Ken. Certainly, if we want to be truly patient-centric, which is uh, something that we take very seriously here at Park Cell, and that is core to what we do, being patient-centric, you need to be able to accommodate patient preferences and patient needs. I think in an ideal world, what we'd like to see is to give patients a choice, you know, i.e. have all of it or most of their participation be in a decentralized way, or for those that prefer to go to sites, give them that option. It's, it's almost akin to having sort of a, a dine-in menu versus a takeout menu in one protocol. But that does increase the level of complexity, operational complexity, scientific complexity, regulatory complexity, 
quite a bit. And, and I think the challenge for us as an industry is working through some of those complexities and making it as simple as possible. What we are seeing at the moment is, uh, you know, most of the trials are somewhat hybrid in that there are some site activities and then uh, a number of the procedures or uh, a lot of the data is captured in the comfort of the patient's own home. Uh, we do have a number of completely virtual trials where there are very limited or no site interaction, but those tend to be um, a few and far between at the moment. It's important um, to educate and set the expectations of patient uh, advocates and patient community. And I wanted to uh, ask our panelists to comment on how, uh, if there are particular messages we need to convey that really help the patient community understand the challenges of, uh, that uh, Sai has noted here of increased complexity just so that we set expectations. We may not always be in a position to offer every conceivable option or to meet every conceivable preference. Um, so if I could just uh, put all of you on the spot, how do we set expectations? What's the right messaging when we talk about uh, preferences and customization in clinical trials? I'll hop on first if that's okay with you guys. This isn't going to be perfect. <laughs> there, there is a there is an expectation that that every patient has that they're going to get the best care possible, and I think as long as the as that as the research sites uh, are providing the best care that they can give, uh, that there is no uh, lapse in the way that patients are are treated, and there is uh, if anything uh, that there is an opportunity here to. Uh, to message to, to potential participants that we're going to customize your treatment more towards you as, as best we can. And we're going to learn how to do that along the way. Uh, the, the, um, I don't want to use COVID as an excuse. I don't think that that's uh, the message that we want to send. Uh, but there is, a, uh, there is a way to take that and say, look, we've, we're, we're learning how to do this. This was thrust upon us as an industry uh, to, to turn trial participation uh, in, into a, uh, a, a virtual environment like the rest of the world has, has done with, with work and with food and, uh, and sheltering in place uh, to try to keep the world going. And that's that trickle down to clinical research. And I think following on from that, it, two key things is, it's honesty, which TJ has, you know, has alluded to there, but also transparency as well. So just provide that information. It's not necessarily about the, the messaging itself and how it's conveyed. It's the fact that that messaging needs to be there. It, just be honest and open because we appreciate that. And it's the only way to manage expectations if you're not honest, expectations aren't going, they're, they're not going to be realistic. It's just as simple as that. I think that um, the pandemic has actually created a world of potential patient advocates. And I think industry is going to benefit from that. Uh, what What's happened is, is that with this pandemic, COVID-19 has the potential to affect anybody. 
And people are generally much more interested in and want to learn about the drugs development process. People are talking about vaccines, they're talking about treatments, they're learning how they're developed, it's being talked about in the media, they're seeing, you know, how drugs could potentially be repurposed, and they're understanding its value. Now, I've often pre-pandemic said that everyone has will be a patient at some point in their lives so everybody has a vested interest in patient centricity in being a some kind of level at some kind of level a patient advocate what this pandemic has done is created a world whereby patients are potentially everywhere and so we have potential patient advocates everywhere and having that general increased knowledge and understanding of the drugs development process i think will in the long run definitely benefit industry and and, and just to add to to the great points that have already been made it is about showing now it's no longer them as in them the patients and us industry it's we together and that honesty and transparency is so fundamental and I think people realise now that science is imperfect. If that's something we've learned during this pandemic, science is evolving. And I think people are aware of that and they have a right to be able to be spoken to in that honest and transparent way, saying we're doing our best, but please, this is part of the process. You are part of this process. Feedback and let's work together to improve the way that we conduct clinical trials, because that is the way that we truly co-produce and co-deliver research that's relevant to all members of society. These have been uh, just terrific, terrific uh, insights. And um, I think all of them, as you're suggesting, really build uh, a sense of partnership between the research community and the patient community and its support network. Um, It's a terrific message uh, as we think about and recognize the International Clinical Trials Day. I want to extend a very special thank you to our panelists, Trishna, TJ, Simon, Sai. Again, this has been a a wonderful and timely conversation with lots of valuable insights and advice. And I want to thank you, uh, uh, all of our listeners on this podcast from CISPRIP and Parexcel for joining us uh, in recognition of uh, International Clinical Trials Day 2020.